Well, greetings and welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor of Old and New Testament and Biblical Interpretation at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I thought it would be fun to spend some time going into the theologians or preachers or pastors who have most influenced me over the course of the past 20 or 25 years in ministry. And it was hard to kind of figure out how to make this list. And so it's somewhat of a top 10 list, but what I've done is I've gone by century, okay? <clears throat> going all the way back to the 1600s. Now, I didn't include Calvin and Luther in this as the, as the Protestant reformers. Um, obviously, those are some of my favorite influences. But we're going to go the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, and then modern day. And I've got two theologians for each century. And obviously, all of these theologians are Reformed, Calvinistic in their theology. And I'm just going to explain a little bit of, of the biography of who they are. But then I'm going to spend more time with their works or their writings or their influence and, and why it's been impactful or important to me. And so I'm going to encourage you to go read these, uh, to listen to these, those that are modern day. And so let's just dive in right into the 1600s. And two of my favorite theologians from the 1600s are obviously British Puritans. They are John Owen and Thomas Watson. So let's first of all talk about John Owen. He was born in 1616 and died in 1683. He was probably the greatest theologian of English Puritanism, and he was very prolific in writing. Uh, he entered Queen's College, Oxford at the age of 12 and began learning the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and Latin. Uh, he was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell, 1965, he was made Dean of Christ Church of Oxford, Oxford's largest college. Um, and then he was given the post of Vice Chancellor of the University. One of the main things he was known for being was a nonconformist. Uh, this was based upon the Act of Uniformity in 1662. Uh, this referred to any type of British subject who separated themselves from the established state church of England. And so uh, the nonconformists were basically any of the Puritans or Presbyterians or any of those uh, separatists that violated the act of uniformity. And so he had a lot of influence in the government, a lot of teaching, preaching. And so I just want to deal with John Owen's um, theology. One of the greatest statements that he has made that has helped me as a pastor, as a preacher, is this. He said, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by the diligent preaching of the word. That has resonated with me as because that, that is my job description. As pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church, my principal or my first or my primary duty, my aim, my job description is to feed the flock. Now, how do I feed the flock? Through faithful, diligent preaching of God's word. Expositionally, systematically, week by week, feeding them God's word. 
Now, John Owen was a staunch Calvinist who did a lot of polemical work against the Arminians of his day. His first major publication was called A Display of Arminianism. It came out in 1642. It was a severe critique of Arminian theology. One of the most helpful books of his on the cross, on the atonement, is it's, 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 it's an interesting title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. This was published in 1647. Now, this is a biblical, theological, exegetical treatise on limited atonement or particular redemption. It is the best exegetical treatment on particular redemption that I have read. And there is the preface or the introduction written by J.I. Packer, which is worth its weight in gold. That introductory essay by J.I. Packer in the death of death of Christ is classic. And so I would commend you to read both the introductory essay by J.I. Packer and the death of death and the death of Christ, his exegetical, biblical, theological argument for particular redemption. One of his other beneficial books that have really helped me early on, this was one of the first books I read of John Owen. Now, uh, this is called Mortification of Sin. Um, It was published in 1656. Mortification of Sin was a very impactful book on me in understanding how to deal with sin in my life because I had kind of grown up in more of a dispensational Arminian Keswick type let go and let God type of theology of sanctification where um, any talk of struggle or striving or any type of battle with sin was, was viewed as you're not really a super Christian, a real super grade A mature Christian would just surrender and yield themselves to the Holy Spirit and you'd never struggle. The evidence that you struggle with sin means you're working in the flesh. And so there was this confusion for me growing up. And then early in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was first introduced to John Owen, Mortification of Sin was one of the most impactful books on me just to understand the, the sin in my life. His famous statement from that is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And it's basically an exposition on Romans 8.13. Romans 8.13 is, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death. Now, the reason it's called mortification of sin is because the King James Version translates that Greek word put to death as mortify or the process of mortification. And one of the statements that John Owen says from that book is, he says, but now let the heart be cleansed by mortification. The weeds of lust constantly and daily rooted up as they spring daily, nature being their proper soil. Let room be made for grace to thrive and flourish. How will every grace act its part and be ready for every use and purpose? And he says this, mortification from a self-strength carried on by ways of self-invention unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. So he unpacks what it means by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually kill sin in your life. And so if you are struggling with sin or you want a book on sanctification or how to deal with sin in your life, this is probably one of the best books mortification of sin now probably one of the most devotionally rich books 
uh, this book actually was the impetus or the influence of, of the book that I wrote, Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel, the book that I wrote that came out back in 2019. Uh, and, and actually in the introduction to my book, I give credit to John Owen, but he's got a book called Communion with God. And this is a wonderful book on how we relate to each person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And there's one paragraph in that book that made me pause, think, reflect. It was kind of life-changing on how I understood my relationship to God the Father especially. And so he says this. He says, when we see the love of God, we will delight in him. Once the heart is taken up with the height and majesty of God's love, we cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared to Him. Exercise your thoughts upon the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and when you do this, you will find that your heart is so wrapped up in delight for Him. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly discover the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from Him will not be able to keep a distance from Him for a moment." I love the imagery there. Sit down for a little while at the fountain of God's love and just soak it up. Spend time meditating and contemplating and thinking about the sovereign grace and free love of the Father for you in the Son and you'll want to spend time in His presence. He also has a book on assurance, Overcoming the Difficulty of Knowing Forgiveness, This is an exposition of Psalm 130. That's a great book. He's also got a book on the Holy Spirit, which he just unpacks a great theology. This is a really good book on the Holy Spirit because it's not influenced by the modern Pentecostal charismatic movement. Uh, This was published in 1674, and so it doesn't have all the modern trappings of a lot that you see um, related to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's a very great, wonderful book on the Holy Spirit. And then he's got a book called The Glory of Christ, His Office and His Grace. This is one of his later books, and and I really like this book, too. This book was impactful for me because the thesis of his book is this. He says, one of the greatest privileges and advancements of believers, both in this world and to eternity, consist in their beholding the glory of Christ. His basic argument is your greatest privilege as a Christian is to keep your eyes fixed on on Jesus. And how do you do that? You fix your eyes on Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures and especially in his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And basically he has this wonderful statement that you want to so much know Jesus here on earth that when you get to heaven, he's not a stranger. Now obviously in our glorified state, that's, that's a theological impossibility, but it's, it's a great word picture. And he says this in this book, many love this world too well and have their minds too much filled with the things of it to entertain our desires of speeding through it to a state in which they may behold the glory of Christ. But we have not so learned Christ Jesus. That's an old way of saying it. We have not learned Christ Jesus. And so his book helps us to fix our eyes on Jesus. So that's John Owen. John Owen, probably more than any other Puritan, has helped me both devotionally grow closer to the Lord. In my process of sanctification, in understanding how sin plays a part in my life and how am I to kill it, and then theologically, issues related to particular redemption and the whole idea of the atonement being 
specifically for God's elect. John Owen, the greatest, I think, of all of the British Puritans. Now, my second favorite Puritan, and the the person I'm going to be focusing on here in the 1600s, is Thomas Watson. Uh, He was born in 1620, and he died in 1686. He's also from Britain, and he was part of Cambridge College. And he was a strong Presbyterian. He was one of the Presbyterian ministers who actually went to Oliver Cromwell to protest the execution of Charles I. And actually, he was uh, put in prison, but he was released later on. And he was the pastor in Walbrook, and he was also part of that whole act of uniformity time period. He was ejected from his pastorate from time to time, and he kind of had to be an itinerant preacher. And then um, in 1672, uh, he became a pastor in um, the town of Crosby Hall, Bishopsgate, and he ministered there um, along with Stephen Charnock until Stephen Charnock died in 1680. And so uh, Thomas Watson, to me, is the most accessible of the Puritans. I, I just love his pithy writing style. He is not too dense. He's very easy to follow. And for me, he is more devotional than maybe as strongly theological and exegetical as John Owen. Now, both of these men are strong exegetes. But the one book that I would commend you to is called A Body of Divinity. And this is basically his systematic theology, and it goes off of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And so he takes the Westminster Shorter Catechism and just unpacks the theology of that, being a good Presbyterian. And so if you want just a really good, it's a good systematic theology, but it's very devotional in its, um, in, in its flavor. So that's called A Body of Divinity. One of the best books on repentance is his book called The Doctrine of Repentance. And he's got one of the best definitions of repentance. Let's see if I can remember it. I don't have it in front of me, but he says, repentance is an inward change of heart with outward visible transformation, something like that. But he goes through the whole doctrine and unpacks all the aspects of what true repentance looks like. And so the doctrine of repentance and another good book of his that's really impactful to me is called The Godly Man's Picture. This is basically just a book that shows you what should a godly Christian man look like or godly Christian woman. What are the traits of godliness? What should you um, exhibit in your life as a godly person? Charles Spurgeon said of this book, A Godly Man's Picture, Spurgeon said, this is a happy union of sound doctrine, heart-searching experience, and practical wisdom. So the godly man's picture. And then another helpful book that I have of his that helped me when I was preaching through the, through the, book, through the book of Exodus was his commentary on the Ten Commandments. Um, he gives a great, it's a great book on the Ten Commandments because he, he gives us the understanding of the three uses of the law, the first use being to crush us, to show us our need for a Savior, the role of the Ten Commandments. The second use to curb anarchy in society. And then a lot of time spent on the third use of the law, showing a Christian's relationship to the Ten Commandments and how it's a rule for living. So if you want to just have a good exposition that's both theologically sound and devotionally sweet, I would commend to you 
his book, The Ten Commandments. So Thomas Watson and John Owen, my two favorite Puritans, my two favorite dudes, dead dudes from the 1600s. Now let's move on to the 1700s. And, and this was a hard one because I, the 1700s was a hard, it is an interesting century in, in theology and in church history. Obviously you had the first great awakening in America and also in England. And so I, I've got two people in the 1700s, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Let's first of all talk about George Whitfield from England. I'm not going to go a lot into his biography. Arnold Dalimore's got a great two-volume set on a biography of, John, uh, of, of, of George Whitfield, but he was ordained in the Church of England. And he was very popular in church circles among the Anglican Church. He goes to Georgia with, um, uh, on kind of like a mission trip, the, the state of Georgia here in America. And in 1738, he comes back and starts to take care of business with an orphanage that he was involved in. And he kind of fell out of favor with the established Church of England. They, they thought he was a fanatic. They thought he was an enthusiast. They really did not like the fact that he was preaching the doctrine of regeneration. And that's really the big thing that George Whitfield focused on was the doctrine of regeneration, the need for the new birth. He looked across the landscape and saw so many unregenerate church members and people claiming to be Christian that weren't regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And so the preaching was kind of bad in England. There was a lot of cowardice in the pulpit. There was a lot of um, immorality. Um, there was a lot of basically a lot of false theology. There was Arianism, Socinianism, Deism. There's just a lot of false teaching in the churches, and it had kind of become a time of, of just kind of deadness and liberalism in England. And so he was not welcomed in the local church. And so what Whitfield had to do was he became very creative, and he's, he's well, most well-known for open-air preaching. Now, this is where we kind of have a little bit of a, of a struggle with Whitfield, probably one of the greatest preachers of all time, but his ministry and his fruitfulness was not tied to local church ministry per se. Uh, and again, that was a cultural, historical issue at the time where he was pretty much rejected. And you have to understand, you know, the Church of England was kind of like a state church. And, and so he had to be creative. So he, he went out into the fields among the coal miners, among the working class. And he began in basically in 1739-ish to go out and to become an open-air preacher. And he was this powerful, wonderful preacher whose voice could carry. Sometimes there'd be up to 10, 12, 15,000 people that he would preach to without modern-day microphones. And he had a way of connecting with the working class, the coal miners, those that, had, that weren't really welcome in the middle-class or upper-class upper churches. Um, th these, these coal miners, these working class people just felt an affection towards Whitfield and his ministry. And so he spent from 1739 to his death in 1770, basically 31 years doing open air preaching. And they, it's estimated that he probably preached like 18,000 times traveling all over England, going to America and back, even visiting Jonathan Edwards' church. And so a prolific 
evangelist. When you think about George Whitfield, you think of him more as an evangelist than maybe a local church pastor. Open-air preaching, thousands of people getting saved. And J.C. Ryle, and we'll get to him in just a moment, J.C. Ryle wrote a biography on Whitfield and talked about his boldness and his directness as a preacher. And one of the things that you'll find out when you read Whitfield's sermon, he never uses the third person, Now, like we or us. That's an interesting thing when it comes to preaching. Uh, there's some debate in preaching. Do you use second person you when you're preaching or do you use we? Modern day preachers tend to use the word we because it's a little bit more safe. You're kind of putting yourself as the preacher among the congregation saying, you know, we need to do this or we, this is where we are. Or, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But some of the best preaching is more second person where it's addressed to you. You need to. You must. This is implications for you. And so I tend to do more of the you preaching because I think it's bold proclamation to direct your, your preaching directly to the people in the audience. And so Whitfield was known for being a direct preacher using the second person, you. And one of the things that was also uh, about George Whitfield was that he was um, very, very earnest he, he spent a lot of time just being bold, earnest. Uh, they said he preached like a lion. He wasn't afraid to be bold. He wasn't afraid to have this great energy, uh, thunder and lightning, the, the effusion of the Spirit, just this powerful preacher where God's Spirit anointed him to be bold in the pulpit. And also he was known for also weeping a lot, weeping tears, he would be so burdened for the spiritual condition of his hearers. And he was talking about the need for Christ, the need for regeneration, the need for them to repent and believe that oftentimes his sermons were mixed with tears. He would weep for those unsaved people that were before him. One of the interesting things, too, about George Whitfield was that he was evidently cross-eyed, which when you think about that, Nowadays, we think about like these skinny jeans preachers that are all, you know, they have the, the they're all made up to, to look good on camera so that they can be this, you know, handsome young guy that, that people can connect with. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that you should be ugly or, or that people should care about looks or whatever. I'm just saying in that day and age, the fact that he was cross-eyed didn't really matter to people. It wasn't a distraction because he was truly a man of God that preached the word powerfully. And there are a couple of impactful sermons. Uh, the Seed of the Woman and the Seed of the Serpent. This is a, a sermon on Genesis 3.15 where he just unpacks how Christ is the promised seed that's going to come and crush the head of Satan. One of the recent sermons I read of his was back before Christmas, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. I preached on that passage of Scripture, and he's got a, a sermon called Christ the Believer's Wisdom, Righteousness, Sanctification, and Redemption, which was a really good um, exposition of that passage of Scripture. Probably one of his famous sermons is on regeneration, where he just unpacks what regeneration is. And then kind of a follow-up to that, he's got another sermon called Marks of True Conversion. So he was very concerned that people were truly saved, truly converted, truly regenerated. What did that look like? And again, in the culture of England during that time, there was a lot of dead orthodoxy. There was a lot of liberalism. There was a lot of hypocrites. And so his concern was that these people that 
thought they were Christians really needed to understand what it meant to truly be born again. Arnold Dalimore writes this of George Whitfield. He says, Whitfield's effectiveness lay not in his eloquence or zeal. We look back and realize that in raising up Whitfield, God had granted upon him and his ministry a mighty effusion of the Holy Spirit. And it was this, the divine power, which was the first secret of his success. Whitfield is known for being one that was anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit in his preaching. A mighty effusion or outpouring of boldness in his proclamation. And that's just a great reminder for us that we as preachers need the power of the Holy Spirit in our preaching so that we are bold, we are clear, we do have zeal and energy and earnestness. It's not the eloquence, it's not necessarily our personality, our charisma, but it's a reliance upon the Holy Spirit. And God used George Whitfield mightily in England during that time to bring about the conversion, the regeneration of many people to Christ. Now, on the other side of the Atlantic here in America, the other person is Jonathan Edwards. And so I kind of have this interesting relationship with Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was very, very influential in my early Calvinism, and that was basically because of John Piper's emphasis. So when I first became a Calvinist, I was very heavily influenced by the writings and the preaching of John Piper. Not so much these days. I have a little bit of some differences in some of the theology of John Piper uh, related to some issues on justification and, and things like that, future grace. But he introduced me to Jonathan Edwards. And, and so Jonathan Edwards is an interesting figure, probably the most brilliant mind that America has produced. In his, and so you can go back and read a lot about Jonathan Edwards. I had to do a big research paper on presentation on him back in my church history class way back in the day. But it's interesting when you read his personal narrative. In his early years, he wrote a personal narrative, and he he gives his testimony about coming to understand God's sovereignty. And I like what he says here. He says, from my childhood up, my mind had been full of objections against the doctrine of God's sovereignty and choosing whom he would to eternal life and rejecting whom he pleased. It used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. And there has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to God's sovereignty from that day to this, so that I can scarce ever have found so much as the rising of an objection against it in the most absolute sense. And God's sovereignty showing mercy to whom he will and hardening whom he will. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, but my first conviction was not so. That was my testimony. I had the same testimony as Jonathan Edwards. You go back on previous podcasts and you can listen to my journey into Calvinism, but I I came kicking and streaming against the doctrines of grace and, and it used to be a terrible doctrine to me to think about God's predestinating unconditional love and his election of those to eternal life and his passing over of others. And so I resonate with that whole idea of his change of heart and mind in relationship to God's sovereignty. Interestingly, The Great Awakening in 1735 broke out with a sermon series on justification by faith alone. You would think that if revival were to break out, it would be a sermon series on the power of the Spirit or the need for prayer or the need for for addressing social ills. But no, it was a doctrinal sermon series on justification by faith alone. Now, when the first Great Awakening broke out, 
for about six or seven years there in Northampton, in that whole area of New England, there were a lot of naysayers that came against Jonathan Edwards and basically poo-pooed or, or, or basically bad-mouthed what was going on. Now, this is very contemporary because of what's going on in Asbury, Kentucky right now at Asbury College with this outpouring. Now, I do not want to call it a revival. I may do a whole other podcast on this. I've done a lot of study of revival over the years. A lot of people are calling it a revival. I think while it's happening, you can say that God is doing something there, but a true revival, I think you have to look back on and see the lasting fruits of it. But what Jonathan Edwards had to do was he had to defend what God was doing in the First Great Awakening to especially those pastors in Boston and other areas that were looking at it askance. And so he wrote a faithful narrative on the surprising work of God. It was basically a letter to Reverend Thomas Prince of Boston defending the revival. And so in this letter, he goes on to talk about all the things that were, that were happening and why he felt, Jonathan Edwards felt it was a move of God. And so this led him to ultimately write his greatest treatise, so Jonathan Edwards' greatest treatise or greatest work is a treatise concerning the religious affections or shorthand, the religious affections. And so in the religious affections, basically what Edwards does is he unpacks what's true revival and what is false revival. What are marks of true revival and what's just emotionalism now this is a very dense book a very very dense book it's very very hard to read i find jonathan edwards very difficult to read because he is so wordy and it is so deep and i don't resonate as much with edwards as the way that maybe others do um, even though i think that his theology on the sovereignty of god his theology on basically a definition of, of the bondage of the will or what he'd call free will. Uh, I mean, his understanding of revival some good stuff. Um, and so there are some things about Jonathan Edwards that I really, really like. For example, one of my favorite sermons by him is The Divine and Supernatural Light, preached in 1734. And he, he goes into great insight into really the doctrine of regeneration or what we would call God opening the eyes of the heart to understand truth that there needs to be a divine light of God's Spirit effectually calling us and regenerating us, opening our blind eyes to see the glories of Christ. And he said this, he said, He that is spiritually enlightened truly understands and sees the glory of Christ or has a sense of it. He does not merely rationally believe that Christ is glorious, but he has a sense of the gloriousness of God in his heart. And basically what he's saying is saying it's one thing to understand the facts about Jesus while it's an entirely other thing to see and understand and, and adore and love Christ and his glory deep in our hearts because our eyes have been open. And, and to illustrate this idea, um, Edwards gave this interesting metaphor of using honey as an example. And he, he basically liked to use a lot of word pictures. He said there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having an actual sense of its sweetness. You may look at honey and you can see it's sticky, it's amber brownish in color. You may have heard other people say it's sweet and you, you, you may have all the information about how bees make honey. You can have cookbooks on how to cook with honey. You can have your mind filled with all this data and have a good assessment based upon 
observation, information that honey is sweet and it tastes great. But you really don't know about honey until you actually take that spoon and dip a honey out of the jar, put it on your favorite biscuit, and you actually taste the sweetness of honey. And he basically says that's how it is spiritually. You can have cognitive information that Jesus is sweet and glorious, but it's not until God has done that work of grace deep in your heart to where then you experientially know because your eyes have been opened and your heart's been regenerated that Christ is sweet, that Christ is glorious. He says, This knowledge will wean us from the world and raise the inclination to heavenly things. It will turn the heart to God as the fountain of good and to choose him for our only portion and it effectually disposes a soul to give itself entirely to Christ. Now, I think there are some negatives with Jonathan Edwards. He tends to lean way too heavily on what I call pietism or maybe even legalism to the point where he almost has this whole idea of living the Christian life to such an extent of intensity and, and resoluteness that it's almost impossible for anybody to, um, to live up to. And of course, this is in his resolutions. In 1722 through 1723, he wrote his resolutions, and there were 70 of them all together. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a resolution or having a desire. But when you write 70 of these and let these be the guiding impetus of your life, he was focusing way more on law than on gospel, what he needed to do to keep himself in God's good graces. Now, there's a debate as to whether you could truly say that was what his intention was, but let me give you some of these resolutions. Resolution number four, resolve to never do anything, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. That's a good resolution. Do everything to the glory of God. Number 25, resolve to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing is in me which causes me in the least to doubt the love of God and direct all my forces against it. Resolution 28, resolve to study the scripture so steadily, constantly, and frequently so that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. So he's got all these resolutions which are in and of themselves aren't bad, when you ha- but when you have 70 of them, it, it can become very legalistic. It can become very effort-driven. It can be very much, I've got to be doing these resolutions to prove my sanctification. And if I fail, then maybe somehow I've lost out on God's good graces. So it could lead a person, if you kind of follow this theology, to be very neurotic and trying to keep these resolutions and leaving no room for failure. So the great thing about Jonathan Edwards Great on the sovereignty of God. Great on the doctrines of grace. Great on a definition of what the human will is. Not libertarian free will, but the will and bondage. The will is that which chooses based upon its nature. God used him mightily in the first great awakening. His religious affections gives good, basically, information, detail, teaching, theology on what is true revival and what is not so in the 1700s george whitfield and jonathan edwards now let's move to the 1800s and of course these two guys are both british and and i love these two guys charles spurgeon and jc ryle now there's so much to say on charles spurgeon i can't even begin i am so indebted to him um, so much so that almost not every sermon but i i read a lot of his sermons 
and just indebted to the life and ministry as a Reformed Baptist who was evangelistic and had a heart for Christ. There's so much for me personally to learn from Spurgeon. When I graduated and got my doctorate from Southern Seminary, my parents gave me a wonderful gift. Uh, They had spent time in England and had gone to Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon was pastor, and they got me a framed sermon manuscript handwritten by Charles Spurgeon that is hanging in my office. So I actually have an authentic handwritten portion of one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons in my study, which I am very thankful that my parents got that. I mean, Lectures to My Students is one of his classics. This is basically a lot of information that he gives towards young pastors. So if you're a young pastor and you're thinking about going into the ministry or maybe it's your first or two years in ministry, this was his pastor's college that he had formed to train up these young men. Um, he also has a, a second book that's just as good. A lot of people don't, don't think about all-around ministry. But all-around ministry is, is actually almost just as good as Lectures to My Students. So both of those books on pastoral ministry. Obviously, his treasury of David, this is his exposition of the Psalms, gives exposition and then he gives insights into the Psalms. His morning and evening devotions, if, if you're looking for just a good devotional, you know, I've done this over the years, morning and evening, he's got a morning reading, he's got an evening reading for every day of the year. Um, actually, you may not know this, but he has a little booklet called Defense of Calvinism. He was a strong Calvinist. And and the same thing kind of with George Whitfield. In in the mid to late 1800s, especially in the late 1800s, towards the end of Spurgeon's ministry, there was what was called the downgrade controversy, where especially the Baptist church had become liberal. There was ecumenicalism that was growing in the churches in London, and there was a lot of liberalism. There was a lot of drift. uh, There was a lot of Arminian, basically Arminianism, leading to a lot of, of, of liberal theology. And so he wrote a defense of Calvinism. He also wrote a a great book called All of Grace, where he just unpacks, basically it's like a gospel track. All of Grace is basically his plan of salvation in kind of a gospel track. And then he's also got a book called The Soul Winner, which talks about evangelism, what our role is in evangelism and sharing the gospel. So, so many things. Um, You can go to Spurgeon.org, where you go to the Spurgeon Archive. Um, There's great, you can get almost all of his sermons there. Um, He was also a Christ-centered preacher, Um, I quoted this in one of my sermons the past week on Christ-centered preaching. Um, In one of of Spurgeon's sermons, he tells a story about how this young preacher was very impressed in his oratorical skills, his ability to wordsmith. He'd spent a lot of time doing the exegetical work to bring this sermon. And he he was preaching this sermon in a church, and his mentor who had taught him was there in the audience, in the congregation. And so the young man finished preaching and came up to his mentor and says, well, what do you think? What what do you think about my sermon? And the older man said, well, it was a bad sermon. It was a poor sermon. It wasn't very good. And the young man was taken aback. What do you mean? I I put a lot of work into this. I I did the exposition. I did the exegetical work. I put a lot of time and effort into the sermon. What do you mean it was poor? And the older man said, You said nothing about Jesus. Christ was not in the sermon. And he said, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there's a road to London? The young man said, yes. He said, ah, the old man said. And so from every text in Scripture, there's a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures. That is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now, what is the road to Christ? 
and then preach a sermon running along the road towards the great metropolis Christ. And he said, I've never yet found a text that had not got to a road to Christ in it. And if I ever did find one that is not a road to Christ in it, I will make one. I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get to my master, for the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savor of Christ in it. And if you know anything about sermons by Spurgeon, Christ is so prevalent. He offers Christ freely in the gospel in all of his sermons. Now, I would say this about Spurgeon. He was not necessarily an expositional preacher who went verse by verse, book by book, the way we would think of expositionally. He was more of a theological or a topical preacher. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily emulate Spurgeon's style, but in the actual sermons, he's always making a beeline to Christ, offering Christ. Now, there are two great books on Spurgeon. As a matter of fact, there's a new book. It's, I'm reading it right now. Um, it's by... Jeffrey Chang. Jeffrey Chang is the head of the Spurgeon Center at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in in Kansas City. And so he's kind of the modern day expert on Spurgeon. And he's written a great book called Spurgeon the Pastor. Spurgeon the Pastor. And he goes into how Spurgeon pastored his church. And so on his preaching, on his leading of prayer meetings, on how he did small group Bible study, how he raised up elders and deacons, how he did Lord's Supper and baptism, how he took in members, how they do membership meetings, how, how they planted churches. It's, 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 it's a wonderful book of insight. And then probably the classic one is by Ian Murray called The Forgotten Spurgeon. It's kind of a biography on a lot of the things that maybe you don't know, a lot of the battles that Spurgeon had, especially in defending Calvinism, the forgotten Spurgeon. So I could say so much on Spurgeon, but obviously in the 1800s, he's my top guy, probably of all time. Secondly is J.C. Ryle, Bishop J.C. Ryle of Liverpool. He's a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. Now, he was in the Anglican Church, but he was a conservative He was an evangelical, and he was fighting the same battle that Spurgeon was fighting among Baptists. In his Baptist circles, Ryle was fighting in the Anglican circles of this liberal drift. And so one of the classics that I use, and I've used it for the past three years in preaching through the Gospel of Luke, is Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. These are just his sermons on the four Gospels, and then after each sermon, he's got his exposition or his commentary. These are golden. If you're preaching through the Gospels or you're teaching through the Gospels, you need to get J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, one of the books that also influenced me, I talked earlier about John Owen's Mortification of Sin, especially when you're dealing with personal holiness. So J.C. Ryle has written a book called Holiness. And in this book, he unpacks what it means to be holy, what it means to grow in your relationship with Christ, what it means to to be holy, to say no to sin in your process of sanctification. And this is a a wonderful book on holiness. We took our our men through this about maybe seven, eight years ago. I do a Monday morning men's study. We went through this book. And so holiness is a classic that you need to get from J.C. Ryle. He's got a book called Practical Religion. He's got a book called Ancient Paths. This is more kind of his systematic theology that's been put into book form. Uh, but there, there's just a warmth to J.C. Ryle. I like the way that he, he writes. He's very pithy. He's short. He packs a punch. 
very uh, pastoral in his preaching, very evangelistic. Uh, J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, Charles Spurgeon, those are my two top dead dudes, and they're both from Britain in the 1800s. Okay, let's move into the 1900s. So the 1900s, I've got two. One is Louis Burkhoff, and the other is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Now, Louis Burkhoff was a Dutch Reformed theologian in the early 1900s, who in the mid-1930s came out with his systematic theology. Now, it originally came out in two volumes, I think even three. Now you can get the three-volume set. So probably, to me, the best systematic theology is by Louis Burkhoff. Now, he is Dutch Reformed, so he's going to be coming from a Reformed perspective, three forms of unity. So the, the Canons of Dort, the Heidelberg Catechism, and um, the, the Helvetic Confession and, and all the different Dutch Reformed documents he's going to have as his theology. But he is succinct. He is clear. He does a lot with historical issues. And so there's a lot of modern-day systematic theologies that Calvinists tend to go to. So, for example, I used to be really big into uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, Maybe 10 years ago was kind of the big thing. Um, I go to that sometime, but, but Wayne Grudem is, is Calvinistic, but he's not Reformed. And so he's got some interesting views on continuing revelation, on speaking in tongues. Um, he tends to have maybe a little bit more um, historic premillennial views of end times. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't go to Wayne Grudem, but if you're going to go to a systematic theology that's robust, I would go to Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. He's also wrote, written another little tiny booklet on assurance of salvation. What does it mean to have assurance of faith? It's about 80 pages long, but it, it was very helpful to me to understand how can you have assurance of your salvation and what is the nature of saving faith. So I don't have a lot to say on Louis Burkhoff, just that get his systematic theology. I go to it all the time for help. Uh, one of my, my favorite systematic theologies and so we're talking around the 1930s is when that systematic theology came out. One of my favorite preachers of all time is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, and the reason why is because you can read his sermons that have been put into book form. And you can also listen to him because they recorded almost all of his sermons at Westminster Chapel in London at the MLJ Trust website. So... There are, there's so much to say about Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's kind of like Spurgeon for me. Spurgeon's up there at the top. Martin Lloyd-Jones is up there at the top as well just because he has such great preaching, such great theology. Um, his probably, one of the best books on preaching is his book, Preaching and Preachers. Now, he's very opinionated in that book, but if every, and this is probably a book, if you, if you take a preaching class, you probably have to read. It's required reading. But you've got to interact with his idea of preaching in Preaching and Preachers. One of the books that really helped me early on, and it's, it's one of his not more well-known books, but he's got a book called Revival. And back in, I think it was the late 50s, early 60s, he preached a sermon series on revival. And again, this would be very helpful, especially what's going on right now in Asbury with this uh, so-called, whether you want to call it revival or outpouring, 
you've got Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. You've got Martin Lloyd-Jones' His Sermon Series. And it's been put into a book, I think it's by Crossway, on revival. And those were helpful to kind of understand historically, biblically, what truly is revival. And then a lot of people have been benefited from his book, A Spiritual Depression. Again, that was a bunch of sermons that really helped deal with the despondent Christian, the cast-down Christian, a Christian who was struggling to understand if God truly loved them, maybe what we would call going through a time of discouragement or depression. Um, His book, Spiritual Depression, which again is a compendium of his sermons, is very helpful. And then also, one of his really helpful books is Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If you're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, you you really need to get uh, Lloyd-Jones' Sermon on the Mount. He's got two great biographies, uh, the two-volume biography on Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can get his Romans commentary, his Ephesians commentary. Uh, Again, I would not emulate the style of Martin Lloyd-Jones because he would preach maybe seven or eight years through a book of the Bible, and he would maybe take one verse each week. And so he sometimes got so detailed with the preaching that he would kind of be cumbersome and and bogged down in a book of the Bible. But one of the, the things I appreciate about Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is, um, uh, I like to imitate him because he didn't have great introductions. He he would start his sermon, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians where we left off last week and in this text we'll see what the Lord is saying. He, He would start out very slow and he would, but then you're listening to him and then here's what's captivating about Martin Lloyd-Jones. By the end of the sermon, there's this crescendo. There's this loftiness. There's this you call it anointing or spirit-empowered delivery where you're just caught up in Christ and, and you, you almost get the chills because God is using him in a powerful way to, to bring the word. So I really like Lloyd-Jones. He, he Very theological, very expositional, but he would bring a lot of systematic theology into his exposition. So when you think about the 1900s, the 20th century, you've got Louis Burkhoff's and his three-volume systematic theology and get anything you can by Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you subscribe to the MLJ podcast, MLJ Trust, you'll get an email every week with a featured sermon. You can go listen to those. Some of the audio quality is not as good as others, but it is helpful to listen to uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Okay, let's talk about modern day. Um, the modern day. Let's let's talk about like maybe the past 20 years, who's been the most influential. Both these guys are Presbyterian. One has passed on to be with the Lord. Uh, the other is, is, is alive and kicking. And my two favorite modern day guys are R.C. Sproul and Michael Horton. Uh, I, I, I can't say enough about R.C. Sproul, his influence, and I think most of those that have embraced Calvinism are indebted to the teachings, the writings, the ministry, the videos of R.C. Sproul and um, his his impact. Um, before I was even a Calvinist, back in the late to mid-90s, I read his book, Holiness of God. And, and that was what really got me interested in R.C. Sproul because he had a depth and a breadth and, a, and, he, and he, he taught so so deeply, but it was so accessible. It was so um, easy to read, but yet there was this transcendent, um, aspect to to R.C. Sproul. And so Holiness of God is a classic. I think every single Christian needs to read The Holiness of God. And then early on, I read his Chosen by God. And that book, probably single-handedly, along with James White's The Potter's Freedom, uh, convinced me of the doctrines of grace. Chosen by God is just basically 
his laying out of Calvinism, Reformed theology. You can go on Right Now Media and watch those videos. Uh, he's got a, a, a teaching series back in the 80s, Chosen by God. Now, I've had the opportunity to hear R.C. Sproul preach many times. Um, I, I went to every single Together for the Gospel conference except for this last one, the, the very final one. I wasn't able to go. But in 2006, when I was there at the very first Together for the Gospel, it was in the, the ballroom at the Gold House, or maybe 2,000 of us in there. And he was preaching, and I was on the, the second row. And so in front of me, two seats in front of me, was John MacArthur, John Piper, Al Mohler, Mark Dever, and Ligon Duncan and C.J. Mahaney were all right right there, and, and R.C. Sproul was, was preaching. And, they, and I think it was Mark Dever who introduced him and said, please no flash photography. Please do not use flash photography. R.C. Sproul gets dizzy. He has vertigo. If you use flash photography, please don't do it. I mean, they made a huge deal about it. Well, sure enough, he starts preaching, and somebody flashes photography, and he stops right in the middle of his sermon, and he gets kind of mad. He goes, listen, with that gruff R.C. Sproul, listen. Are we going to have to have a come-to-Jesus moment and have an altar call right now and get you saved? They said no flash photography. <laughs> it was like everybody just started, like, uh, he's like, I'm going to have to become an Arminian here and have an altar call. I come to Jesus. Please no flash photography. So I heard him preach numerous times at the Together for the Gospel conference. Also in 2010, I went to the Southern Baptist Convention in Orlando. It was kind of a big one that year because uh, it was well attended. And the founders had a breakfast with Tom Askell, and they invited R.C. Sproul to give the breakfast. And so he just taught on justification by faith alone, had an opportunity afterwards to go up and talk with him. But that was more of an intimate setting, hearing him do more of a teaching than a preaching. And obviously, probably many of you have benefited from Ligonier's. Um, I've been to the Ligonier's annual conference in Orlando. We've been getting Table Talk magazine for years in our home. We offer Table Talk magazine here at the church. We, we buy a subscription of 15 each month. We put them out on our resource table free. People can, can take the, uh, the Table Talk magazine's home. We turn people to the Ligonier website. Um, I, I can't tell enough about the influence that R.C. Sproul has had upon me and my wife personally. We, we both are indebted to the ministry uh, of R.C. Sproul. And then finally, Michael Horton. Uh, Michael Horton was instrumental in, in my embracing of Calvinism early on. Um, about 20 years ago, I started listening to the White Horse Inn. Uh, it was actually back then a radio program, and now, now you can get it on obviously every Sunday on podcast. Um, and that was back when it was Rod Rosenblatt, Ken Jones, and Kim Riddlebarger, and Michael Horton. And then I just kind of devoured every book that Michael Horton, because he writes a lot of books. But one of the best books that I read early on was that helped me embrace the doctrines of grace, Reformed theology, Calvinism, was putting amazing back into grace. It was his way of teaching the doctrines of grace in a very accessible, friendly warm way and that book is so if you want like a really good book maybe to give to somebody that you're trying to convince putting amazing back into grace is a great book on calvinism his book christ the lord on the lordship controversy and talking about the nature of saving faith and the nature of repentance is a wonderful book to help give us the categories of what is truly repentance and faith is faith absolute surrender to the lord through obedience or is faith arresting and receiving in christ as he's freely offered in the gospel he's also written a book on worship that's very helpful thinking of it as a covenant renewal ceremony called a better way 
I think that's a wonderful book on worship. And then one of the, the, the early books I read of, of his is In the Face of God. This deals with a lot of mysticism. It deals with a lot of, this, of the kind of Keswick or the let go and let God type of theology of glory, type of sanctification. And that was very helpful um, early on in helping me understand sanctification. So if there are three books that have helped me in understanding sanctification, it would be Mortification of Sin by John Owen, Holiness by J.C. Ryle, and then this book In the Face of God by Mike Horton. Those three books have helped shape my understanding of how a person grows in Christ. And then about a year and a half ago, I took my men through his book, Ordinary. Ordinary is just a great book where he talks about how, I think it's in response to David Platt's book, Radical, because there's kind of a movement where everything needs to be radical, pedal to the metal Christianity where everything's intense and you've got to be on fire for Jesus all the time and be making this cultural difference in the world and you've got to be world changers and be radical. And he basically says, you know what, that's not sustainable. Uh, ordinary is how do you live the Christian life as an ordinary average person through the ordinary means of grace that are in the church, through the ordinary ways that God has given us to sustain us through the long haul to be effective, growing Christians. So his book, Ordinary. And so I still listen to the White Horse Inn. Uh, Michael Horton does have a systematic theology called Pilgrims on the Way. Um, so it's a good modern-day systematic theology. Um, I, I, I appreciate everything that, that Michael Horton does. So there is my list, my top ten list, of my f- most influential theologians going all the way back to the 1600s up to today. So we have John Owen, the Puritan, Thomas Watson, the Puritan. You've got George Whitfield, the outdoor air preaching evangelist in Britain. You've got Jonathan Edwards, the father of the First Great Awakening. You've got Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. You've got Bishop J.C. Ryle of Liverpool in the 1800s. You've got Louis Burkhoff, Dutch Reformed theologian, his systematic theology. You've got Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've got R.C. Sproul, and you've got Michael Horton. Now, I could probably think of more, but these are just kind of the, the theologians, the pastors that have most shaped my theology, my pastoral ministry, my understanding of how the gospel works, church life, all things related to my life and to my ministry. So check these guys out. Uh, read. Spend time devouring these giants of the faith and how God has blessed his church with these men who have made a wonderful impact, not just on my life, but upon the church at large. And so hopefully this has been helpful to you, just kind of get an idea of who, who influences me. And we may do this um, again sometime. Maybe I, I'm thinking about doing a podcast on, on books on preaching that have most influenced me on how, how I preach. And so there's a lot of things that are going on in my mind as far as future podcasts. Again, contact me if you have ideas of what you want me to cover in a future podcast. I'd love for you to go to seancole.net. You can get all my contact information there. You can friend me on Facebook as well. I'm I'm on Twitter not as much, but um, I would love to interact with you and, and to communicate with you. And So thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Until next time, as John Owen would say, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus.